Buenos dias. Good morning, everyone. We're turning our attention to the book of Micah, chapter 4, <clears throat> verses 1 through 8. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Thus ends the reading of God's word. How many parents in this room, or I guess we could expand that to grandparents as well, have heard these words? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? How many adult, you don't have to raise your hands, how, how many adult children in this room have said those words? Are we there yet? I, I've tried all sorts of responses to those words as a dad, some of them less effective than others. I'll give you a few examples. We'll get there when we get there. You can decide how effective that was. If you ask one more time, you'll lose dessert. Or why don't you read a book? Or why don't you listen to music? Or how about we play the alphabet game? You know, we, we can laugh at those responses, and, and you might get a few miles, parents, grandparents, out of threats or distractions, but in my experience, they don't work for very long. They, they certainly don't bring enduring joy on a very long stretch of 168 when you're driving to the Outer Banks. And I think that the challenge of long car rides with kids, whether you have kids or not, imagine you can relate to that dilemma, illustrates a struggle that is common to man, to young and old alike. And that's this, when, when, you're, when your present situation feels bleak or unendingly hopeless, it's really hard to keep going. It's hard to persevere 
When the blessing, whatever it is, that you long to experience is slow in coming. Can you relate to that? It's hard to keep going. Micah 4 opens on the heels of one of the bleakest and most discouraging words in the entire book of Micah. It wasn't originally written with chapter and verse breaks. And this is a break that is, I think, more unhelpful than helpful in some ways because in Micah 3.12, we learn this. The prophet says this, Therefore, because of you, because of the wicked prophets, priests, kings, ruling in Israel, and, and the social injustice the people practiced as a result, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house, a wooded height. Capital city destroyed, temple destroyed. What's Micah saying? That, that the Lord isn't a grandfather, friends, who just sweeps things under the rug. He, he doesn't turn a blind eye to, to sin or to oppression, or or to the spiritual adultery from which it flows. You you will not escape his judgment, Micah warns. The city you thought would, would never be conquered, Jerusalem, will be completely destroyed because you were unwilling to turn from your sin. You will no longer be God's people in God's place under God's rule. You will be judged. You will be sent into exile. You'll suffer shame in a foreign land. That's, that's Micah 3.12. But that didn't mean, friends, that God was finished with having a people for his own possession. Micah 3 ends with imminent judgment, but, but that's not the only event on the horizon in the prophet's eyes. That the Lord is a God of justice, but he's also a God of mercy. And and in Micah 4, he he lifts Israel's eyes and and the eyes of every weary saint languishing in the brokenness of a fallen world. And he leans down and Yahweh whispers, take heart, child. It's not how the story ends. Redemption is coming. Salvation is on its way. Don't don't grow weary. Don't lose heart. Hold, Hold fast to the promise of future grace, for in so doing you will find present strength to obey and persevere and keep on obeying until the day I bring you home. That's what the father's doing here. But like a good father, equipping his kids for a long car ride, that the Lord, he turns their attention, he turns our attention in chapter four to the final destination, to the distant horizon. He, he directs their thoughts to, to the joy awaiting them at the beach, so to speak, to, to the blessings they'll experience. 
to the, to the waves they're going to ride, to the sandcastles they're going to build, the games they will play, the, the food they will eat, all because of his glorious grace. He's a good father. He doesn't, he doesn't say, shut up and trust me. He says, let me tell you what you're waiting for. I think the sorrows of this life compel the people of God in every age, young and old alike, to cry out, are we there yet, Lord? Right? Or or to use the psalmist's language, how long, O Lord? And the Father replies in passages like Micah 4 by reminding us that life with him is so worth the wait It's worth the sacrifice. It's worth the tears. It's it's worth the pain of of taking up your cross daily to follow the son. Here's the the point of this whole section, okay? Present obedience is sustained by the promise of future grace. He's a good father. He knows that what Israel needs, same thing we need. What every languishing saint in the brokenness of this world needs, what's, what's going to sustain our present obedience, it's faith in the promise of future grace. And the intended effect of this whole passage is found smack in the middle in verse 5. Look there. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk. May this be said of our church, Kingsway. We will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And if we're going to join their company, if we're going to follow Micah's lead in doing that, there are two things we need to remember. One comes before verse 5, and the second comes after verse 5, okay? So we're going to spend most of our time on the first. Here's point one, verses 1 to 4. What do we need to remember? First thing, the future of God's people is exceedingly glorious. Exceedingly glorious. And let me encourage you as we work through this, at any point you agree with what I'm saying, you are more than released to shout out amen. Okay? So the contrast between what's happening to Jerusalem or the mountain of the house of the Lord in Micah 3.12 and 4.1 is striking. We saw that. In 3.12, Micah says Jerusalem will become what? A heap of ruins, a wooded height. But in verse 1 of chapter 4, he points to an even further day, to the latter days, Micah says, when Jerusalem will be what? Established as the highest of the mountains and lifted up above the hills. That that doesn't mean the Lord is going to take a hill that is presently about 2,500 feet tall and push it above Everest. (laughs) Okay, what, what, what does elevation represent? What, what, symbolically, metaphorically, what's it represent in Scripture all throughout the prophets? Elevation. It's a metaphor for glory and splendor and supremacy. What, what does Jerusalem represent? What's the city of God, right? The city where God dwells in the midst of his people. So, so what is Micah saying in verse 1? That in the latter days, God's people in God's place under God's rule will be exalted in the eyes of the world. That's what he's saying. Yahweh will be supremely glorified above every other hill, every other pagan rival, and God's people will be glorified in him. 
And notice when, when Jerusalem's fortunes are reversed, how will the surrounding nations respond? Look at verse 2, where, where people once fled from Jerusalem into exile. Now what does Micah say? In the future, the tide is going to run in the opposite direction. Verse 2, people shall flow to it. The fact that there's something flowing up to a mountain just shouts, it's supernatural. Rivers don't flow up to mountains. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. Well, what's going down here? Mike is saying in the future, Gentiles are going to be flocking to Jerusalem to, to join the people of God. And they're going to be crazy hungry for two things. First, to learn who God is. And what he's done to to understand his ways. Second, to obey him accordingly. To to walk in his paths. Because those two things always go together. So peoples and nations that have for centuries been far off will be brought near. A, A new spiritual desire in their hearts will compel them to know and follow the Lord. That, that's the horizon. That's the future Mike is directing our attention to. Where is that fulfilled, friends? Well, he's, he's pointing forward to what we're celebrating this week. You realize that? To, to the work of salvation that, that God accomplished some 700 years later when he sent his son Jesus into the world to save sinners. That the promises in Micah 4, 1 and 2 are fulfilled through the work Christ accomplished on the cross for the new covenant people of God. Listen how Paul describes the church in Ephesians 2, 18 with the same language Micah uses to describe the city of God in Micah 4. For through him, we both, what's that, Jew and Gentile alike, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Who's he talking about? The church, right? In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. On on this side of the cross, in other words, the people of God are no longer defined ethnically. They they consist of who? Who do the people of God consist of today? All who hold fast to Christ in repentance and faith. That's what it means to be part of the people of God. Members of his body, the, the church, and the dwelling place of God today on this side of the cross, Jesus' resurrection is no longer a physical temple in Jerusalem. Rather, Christ takes up residence within his people through what? The power of the Spirit, right? Manifesting himself in incredible ways when we gather together to glorify him and edify one another. What is Paul saying? Building off of Micah. That through the church, God makes himself known today. 
through the church, pe- people from every tribe and tongue, all that Micah was anticipating, learn who God is and what it means to follow him. And it all happens, notice this, through the transforming power of the word of God. Look at the end of verse two. It's so important. For out of Zion, out of the people of God, the church, shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, from, from the city of God. What, what is, question, what, what is the word of the Lord that God has commissioned us to declare King's way? What is the word of the Lord? Yes, well said, the gospel. That's right. The good news of Jesus and all he's done to accomplish salvation for mankind. That the gospel is the, the operative agent, as it were. Okay, it's, it's the life-changing power that, that causes dead hearts to come alive with affection for the Savior. You realize you can't do that for somebody. You can't even do that for yourself. You, you cannot will your dead heart to come alive with affection to King Jesus. But the word of God can do that. The word of the gospel does that. We, we don't have any power to make anyone desire to know and follow Jesus, but the word does and the word will. Our job is to speak it and to watch as the word does what only the word can do. Remember that, friends. And please know I'm not just talking when I speak of the, the word going out from the church about what's happening when I'm preaching on Sunday morning. What are we really talking about? What, what happens in a thousand ways throughout the week as you are faithful to speak the truth in love? That, that's, that's the fulfillment of the end of verse two. The law, the word of the Lord going out, going forth from the people of God through your mouth. Ephesians 3 verse 10 so that through the church, through us, Kingsway, local churches like ours, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. How is King Jesus shouting his praises to the world today? Think about that. Certainly God's creation shouts of his glory, Psalm 19, Romans 1. But, but in a particular way, how, how is he manifesting the glory of God in the face of Christ to the world? It's through this. <laughs> it's through the church. And, and not just because we exist, but when we're faithful to fulfill the reason for which we exist, which is what? End of verse two. To see the word of the Lord go forth from us in this community and around the world. That's why I went to Namibia. <laughs> eager to see the word do what only it can do. And I predict, brothers and sisters, that over the next couple decades especially, we, we will increasingly be seen by the world around us as of little account. Okay, the, the, the Christendom days are gone. They're not coming back. And yes, we're a very small part of what God is doing all over the world. But know this, friend, what the Lord is accomplishing in us and through us in this city could not be more glorious.
couldn't be more glorious through, through all our shortcomings and failings. He's using us to, to draw lost men and women to himself from every people and nation. So I, I challenge you, I ask you, friend, think about this. When you think about the church, not just in general, but, but our local church, what comes to your mind? We need to take care that we never consider as ordinary what God has declared is supernatural. But even as we consider how, how Micah verses 1 and 2, chapter 4, is being fulfilled today through the church, through the word of the gospel, our hearts long for more, don't they? <laughs> I mean, my heart does. Longs for more, even as I'm grateful for what we have. Yet, yes, the gospel is going forth through the church into many nations, and they may be included. But, but does the entire world right now see the church of Jesus Christ as glorious? No. You feel that. Watching the news last night is enough to just prove that. Are, are we established as the highest of the mountains? Have we been lifted up above the hills? Not yet in full. Why not? Well, because the fulfillment of Micah 4, 1 and 2 is, is both an already and a not yet. Same time. And, and the not yet awaits the day Jesus returns for his bride. Listen to Revelation 21, verse 9. Same exalted city mountain language. It's all over the Bible. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. That, that day is a coming, friends. <laughs> that day's coming. And, and when it does, verses 3 and 4 will finally come to pass in all their fullness. What will happen on the day King Jesus returns? King Jesus will judge between many peoples and decide for strong nations far away. Why, why does Micah go there and, and point out, that when the Lord returns, he'll be a judge. It's because he rejoices in the fact that, that Christ will make himself known as the perfectly just and faithful judge that everybody else in Israel that Micah was looking at abysmally failed to be. Even the best leaders, the, the best rulers, the best pastors are not what King Jesus gloriously is. The perfect and faithful judge. And notice his righteous judgments, what Micah looks forward to, verses 3 and 4. They, they don't just kind of stem the tide, hold back the tide of, of human suffering and oppression. They bring a complete end to it. Verse 3. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares. Well, into farming tools. And their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. What, what, a, what a day that is going to be, Kingsway. 
What, what a day that will be. I, I love how Ralph Davis describes this. People and nations do not produce this state of affairs by their own efforts or brilliance or exhaustion. Rather, Yahweh imposes his just rule, and because of that, nations exist in peace. So so what's going to replace the strife of war when the Lord returns? Look at verse 4. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. Now, some of you hear that and think, man, why is that worth looking forward to? I mean, where's the air conditioning? Where's the direct TV, right? Every man under his vine and fig tree, what in the world? That image in Micah's time was a picture of total, abundant prosperity, blessing, and provision. It was a return to Eden. It it was an end to oppression and the economic inequality and poverty that it creates. No more famine. No more eviction. No more deprivation. The Lord's promising his people that there's a coming day, the new heavens and the new earth, when when all of God's people will experience the abundant physical blessings that originally marked the Garden of Eden. At the very beginning. And as if that's not enough, look at the middle part of verse 4. Micah adds, and no one shall make them afraid. I don't even have a category for what that will be like. Can you imagine that, friends? That the The very threat, the very possibility of human impression and injustice will be completely eradicated. No alarm systems. No police. No laws broken. No security companies. No concealed carry permits. No standing armies. No weapons of war. No civil rights cases. No crime reports ever. That the specter of suffering completely gone. When the prophet says the future awaiting the people of God is exceedingly glorious, he is not kidding or exaggerating. (laughs) That's exceedingly glorious. And yet, even as I describe that, I wonder, as you hear me describe that, as Micah describes that, the future awaiting, the exceedingly glorious future awaiting the people of God, Because of Jesus. I think there's a part of us that can hear all that and think, that kind of seems like a fairy tale, Williams. Almost a a too good to be true thing. For the word of God reminds us that that is not make-believe or wishful thinking. Absolutely every promise in verses 1 through 4 is guaranteed by the infallible word of God. Look at the end of verse 4. What what ensures all of that is going to go down? For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. 
drop mic. <laughs> right? What, what? I'll put it this way. Because Yahweh's sovereign signature is on the page, it's going down. That's what the prophet's saying. It will surely come to pass. So he begins by describing the, the future grace waiting for the people of God. It's exceedingly glorious. But then what's the second thing we need to know? Verses five through eight, point number two, that our Redeemer King will surely bring it to pass. Why is this important? Because it is quite easy to hear a description of the glorious future awaiting the people of God and think, man, I sure hope I can get myself there. Or I sure hope my church can be faithful enough to bring that to pass. Or I sure hope I'm around to enjoy all of that. I mean, we, so many places we can go. Here's my question for you, friends, as we transition to this second half. Is the fact that God has made a promise to bring it to pass enough for you? Is that alone enough for you? Is that and the promises of God, is that where your confidence lies for the future of your life? The promises of God. Think of it this way. What, what guarantees a preferable future in your mind? What secures that in your mind? Is it the work you're doing? Or someone else is doing? Or, or is it the work God is doing? M- Micah's point is that Present joy in future grace is reserved for those who know and believe the promises of God. Verse 5, for all the peoples walk each in the name of its God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. That, that's his response. That's his resolve. That's what he's urging his countrymen to do. Given this glorious future, exceedingly glorious future that the Lord has promised the people of God, let's live accordingly right now. Even while we're waiting for that. He he surveys the surrounding nations. And what does he see? What's he see even even among his own wayward people? That their their path in life, verse 5, the way they're walking, all, all the choices they're making, that all that reflects the object of their worship. They're they're walking, they're living in the name of their chosen Savior. They're false gods. And in contrast, what what do the people of God do? Even before the future God has promised comes to pass, what do we do? We live in the present in a way that reflects our hope for the future is completely in the Lord. That's what we do. We're all walking, in other words, whether you realize this or not, in the name of some kind of God. (laughs) Which is another way of saying that to be human is to be a worshiper. You are always, I am always, worshiping something, friends. Your your friends around you, the people you're going to have lunch with today, even while they are chewing, they are worshiping something. You're worshiping something. Your kids are worshiping something. We're, we're all collectively, inescapably looking to something or someone to give us a preferable future. Listen, even if that thing or person you're hoping will give you a better future is failing miserably, 
such that you have no hope at all, we still look there. In other words, it works whether it's delivering the goods or not. And if you're unsure what that false God might be, simply ask this, what robs my joy in the present? If you want to know where your hope lies for the future, ask, what is robbing my joy right now? So if losing money robs your joy, what can you assume? That money has become your hope for the future, right? If, if losing the approval of a friend robs your joy, then, then your friend has become your hope for the future. If, if your kids misbehaving robs your joy, then you can know your children have become your hope for the future. If, if not getting everything done in a given day that you planned on getting done or desperately wanted to get done today robs your joy, guiding myself here, then you can know your hope for the future is in your work. Here, here's the bottom line, friends. This is humbling. Neither you or me or anyone around us can ultimately make everything that is wrong in this world right. We don't have that ability. That doesn't mean we don't advocate for justice. But that does mean, listen carefully, we refuse to saddle ourselves or someone other than God with a responsibility to save that belongs to God and God alone. Don't put that burden on your spouse. Don't put that burden on your kids, on a coworker, on a pastor, on a family member. It's God's job to make everything sad untrue. <laughs> it's our job to trust and obey him until he does. And, and, and remembering, make this connection, remembering that the goodness, the glory of the future God is bringing to pass, remembering that is what enables us to persevere in the present in obeying and trusting King Jesus. 2 Peter 3, verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved into the new heavens, new earth, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming day of God? Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, Micah 4, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What's Peter saying? Same thing Micah's saying. Present obedience is sustained by faith in future grace. And our task, our calling, is to, it's to live the kind of holy and dependent life in the present that's consistent with the future God has promised to us. Look at verse 6, Micah 4. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. He's, he's promising to restore those who are about to suffer exile in Babylon, in Assyria. Here's what that tells us, friends, that both then and now, the discipline of the Lord in our lives 
always has a redemptive end in view. We need to think about this, not move on quickly from this, okay? We need to take heart in that promise that that the discipline of the Lord always has a redemptive end in view, especially when you and I realize we're suffering the consequences of our own sin because that's a real thing. When that's happening, don't begrudge them with worldly sorrow. Let, Let those consequences drive you back to the Lord. Why? Why do I say that? Because the restoring mercy and grace of God is just as real as the consequences of your sin. That's what Micah 4 verse 6 shouts. And for the Christian, it's the mercy and grace of God that will ultimately prevail in your life. That too, Micah 4 6 shouts. He's shouting that, that God isn't done with Israel, even though she's about to experience the consequences of Her sin, verse 7, the lame I will make the remnant, and those who were cast off, a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. I mean, talk about a reversal of fortunes. It doesn't get much bigger than going from a despised nation in exile to a strong nation elevated on a mountain. It's like the prophet is just running out of metaphors to describe how great the reversal is. And friends, that's what the Bible's talking about when it describes Jesus as your redeemer. What does Jesus do? How does he redeem? We can throw that word around and have no clue what it means. It's all about verses six and seven. It means that Jesus takes the spiritually crippled and makes them a chosen remnant. He redeems. He he takes those who are despised in the eyes of the world and makes them pillars in the house of God. He redeems. And he's faithful to redeem, not just here and there, but forevermore. I I love John Calvin's reflection on the the last word in verse 7. Listen to this. Micah does not say that God will reign only for a day or, or for a brief time but forever. For if we thought that after helping us today, God would withdraw tomorrow and leave us in doubt as to when he might ever help us again, what sort of consolation would that be? Even if God should help us for a season or two, but we should not know about the future, we would still gain nothing. But when God assures us that his assistance will last to the very end, indeed without end, and that in life and in death we shall feel his protection and his safekeeping, what greater assurance could we want? Friend, the world might look at you and say, what a wreck. What a wreck you are. You're lamer than lame. You've wasted your life. You blew your chances. Game over. Know this, God says, is anything too hard for me? Is there anything in the whole cosmos that's too hard, too broken, too messed up that I cannot redeem? You won't find it, friends. 
You won't find it. Don't, don't look at your past or what you've become and say, oh, well, I guess that's the trajectory of my life. Don't do that. Look to the Lord. Look to the Lord. Micah, notice, doesn't, he doesn't direct Israel's attention to a future day when she gets her spiritual act together. That's not what he's pointing us toward. He directs her attention and ours to the faithfulness of God. Under the kings of old, kings like David, Solomon, Israel enjoyed dominion and authority over all the surrounding nations. And in verse 8, look there as we conclude. Micah ends by declaring that after the sorrow of exile, Jerusalem will be exalted once again. And notice, how is it going to go down? A king will arise in Jerusalem. When we go into chapter 5 next week, it will become crystal clear that king's name is King Jesus. (laughs) A risen king. And the dominion, the, the reign, both present and future, that King Jesus offers you, friend, is not a take back Washington thing. <laughs> it's a holding fast to Christ thing. That's the reign. That's the dominion. If, if you've embraced the obedience of faith in verse 5, in other words, you can know this, that no matter who is seated or about to be seated on the Supreme Court, you, Christian, are already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. You share in his triumph and authority. You're more than a conqueror, as Paul says, in Christ, enjoying the spoils of his victory over what? The world, your flesh, and the devil. And that's why Paul rejoices in Ephesians 1, 21, that the Father has seated the Son, our conquering King, listen, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, every false God, every pretend Savior that we grovel before, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. As members of the body of Christ, we share in his reign, in part now, one day in full. But Micah 4 reminds us, especially the second half, it's not because we deserve it. It's because our king is a faithful redeemer. And so on the days you find yourself, friends, saying again and again, Lord, are we there yet? (laughs) Are we there yet? Micah 4 exhorts you to remember two things. Remember this. The future of God's people is exceedingly glorious. And our faithful Redeemer King will bring it to pass. That's the message of Micah 4. That that the promise of future grace is what sustains our present obedience. Because we know this we know, King's Way. That there is no labor of love. There's no death to self, no sacrifice to follow Jesus, no choice when no one else is watching to walk in the name of the Lord our God. None of that is ever in vain. 
Following Jesus is always worth it because a glorious future awaits those who do. Remember that. If if you're in Christ, in other words, Micah 4 isn't a description of what you might experience if you make all the right choices. Micah 4 is a promise from the God who ordained the end of your story from the beginning and is writing every chapter along the way. (laughs) That is Micah 4. So don't doubt. Don't fear. When you feel your heart crying out, Lord, how long are we there yet? Remember, it's God's work. And he's going to bring it to completion. May, May that promise, that future grace, sustain and compel our present obedience. Let's pray. Lord, there's a beautiful simplicity to this passage. But it is something we so quickly forget. That the future waiting for us as the people of God is exceedingly glorious. And that you're going to bring that to pass. Lord, deliver us, especially this week as we turn our attention to your death and resurrection from the pride that would think that responsibility can be fulfilled by ourselves, by another person. Jesus, only you can redeem. Only you can save. And we pray that what we see of the future in this chapter would help us to persevere in the present, in following hard after you. Do that, we pray, Lord. Turn our eyes to the day we get to see you. Amen.